Hi, welcome to Restoratively Yours, Belvedere Youth Club podcast series about restorative practice. I am Jenny Courtney, BYC's General Manager. We are a youth club based in Dublin in our city and in 2019 we embarked on a journey to become a restorative hub in the community. Restorative practice, RP in short, is a philosophy and a set of practices focusing on building and maintaining good relationships and dealing with conflict in a healthy way when it occurs. For us, it has become the way we want to do everything. In this series, you will hear our story, the ups and the downs of our journey through different voices. Dorothy, our RP consultant, will guide you along the way. We hope it will be inspiring and enlightening. Hello, in this episode, we talk about the training the staff undertook and the impact it had. Most of the staff was trained by James, the RP coordinator, during the first phase of the implementation. Some staff members had been trained at the National College of Ireland a few years before. James, the coordinator, followed the Childhood Development Initiative's approach to training. Both have a similar structure that consists of two levels of training and a training of trainer. The first level focuses on the restorative mindsets and one-to-one interventions, how a practitioner can start introducing RP in their work, using restorative language, having restorative conversations, understanding what it means to be fair and developing emotional intelligence. The second level is a facilitation course. It teaches practitioners how to facilitate restorative processes like circles, meetings and formal conferences. All the staff in BYC did at least the first level and learned to facilitate basic restorative circles. You'll hear from Dean and Kira, youth workers, and Jonathan, youth team lead, about their training experience. But I would have originally been trained with NCI, uh, with MOE, with, uh, with, with getting started, you know. Um, so that would be my first experience with restorative practice training. And I really enjoyed it, you know. Um, it wasn't until I done the intermediate training with NCI that um, I sort of really took to it and I suppose valued it as a as a sort of tool or a way to work. You know, uh, we, like I've mentioned it before, we've we done a fishbowl circle and that was a real eye-opener for me, you know, to see, like, there's actual tangible outcomes to using restorative to practice and there can be solutions, there can be... Um, it's not just talking around in a circle, there is actual solutions to, to problems that people have, you know, it's a really good, it's a, it's a great resource, you know. Um, but yeah, then I done, I done training with, I suppose, with CDI, with James, I guess, you know, um, and like, I think we, we might have done that a bit online, do you know what I mean? So that was, um, it was different. So it can be, it can be quite different, you know, and um, I think it comes down as well a lot of times to people's style of training, you know, uh, people have different styles, you know, um, different trainers have different styles and stuff, you know. So, it, depending on who's training you, a lot of the times then can inform how you how you view a certain subject, you know. I think it's something that I've been sort of engaging in in my work without even really realizing. It's sort of just um, structuring how I work and being able to sort of relate back 
and put it into sort of a framework nearly. Um, the likes of like fairness and equality and um, like compassion and empathy is something that I'd really put into my work. So having to just sort of look back and be like, no, I am following the right sort of steps. Um, or being able to look back and be like, okay, so I didn't really follow that properly. This is how I should do it in the future now because I have that sort of framework to base my work off now. So far, I think it's really interesting to see other people's perspective on it as well. Like, like I said, like things like fairness that we had to talk about and it seems something so simple, but the fact that everyone in the room had different ways of explaining fairness and breaking it down and their understanding of it. I thought it was really interesting and nobody was wrong in what they said, but it was just a difference of perspective. Um, and I think that that's really sort of what it comes down to. Like everyone is in these sort of jobs to help people and to, um, you know, kind of do their duty, I suppose. Um, so the fact that, like, I think it's really beneficial for everyone to be working off the same page um, and the same structure. Um, I think it really benefits then the young people as well, like in particular like this organisation, if we were, if we all have the same training, we're all working sort of singing off the same hymn sheet, um, it really helps the young people because then it's consistent. And I think consistency is really, really important in jobs like this. Um, and particularly when it comes to fairness, I think consistency is the biggest one um, to have with the kids. Um, because we were talking about today, like a lot of the times when it comes to fairness, the process is so much more important than the outcome because the kids can accept that if the process was fair, the outcome doesn't really matter as much so long as they feel like they've been treated the way they should be treated. I think sometimes there can be inconsistencies um, which can lead to frustration and then a bit of tension, which is, you know, not good when you're working, trying to work as a team with young people because they pick up on that very quickly. Um, and I think there's always going to be cases in, in any organisation where people feel like things weren't done the right way or weren't, like they didn't get the outcome they were looking for. Um, but I think we're kind of nearly the same as the young people that, if we feel the process was fair, it doesn't really matter whether the outcome, you know, goes our way or not. Because um, the focus really should be on the process. I was trained in restorative practice maybe six years ago. So I'll be very honest, I went to restorative practice training because I felt like, oh, this is a new thing and this might give us an opportunity then to be more progressive in the city. So I approached Emma and did a small bit of training with Emma. But when I did the training, it didn't really sort of jump out to me as sort of this is a great training or this is something that I really want to do. It wasn't until I completed the force getting started and I had conversations with Emma and built programs and then I went back and did the upskilling. So it was the second session I remember very well of the upskilling where I really said, oh no, this is really making a difference because I was subconsciously using restorative practice but I wasn't consciously aware of doing that. So then I became conscious of it and then I seen the, the authentic relationships that I was developing with everybody inclusive of Emma. So I really bought into it then after that. But what happened was I did a lot of training early doors. I did um, getting started, upskilling and then 
later on trying to train her. But after my upskilling, there was probably a two or three year gap. Whereas I thought I was um, being very restorative in Belvedere Youth Club. But what happened was I was basically, when young people came in and they were getting involved in certain different things, I was pulling them out and having conversations with them, thinking, oh, this is a great piece of restorative practice. But I was actually, I was letting them down. I was letting things escalate. I wasn't being fully restorative myself or I wasn't using the language. But I, I wasn't aware that I wasn't using it until... Um, later on where I, I really tried to get embedded into when the organisation had um, had put forward a proposal with that proposal having these conversations linking in more with Emma linking in with Mark Maloney around the corner and linking in with CDI it really gave me an opportunity then to go deeper then James was further embedded that and come in and sort of create a space where he could challenge me I used to be the, the person here that oh venting is restorative related go and see Jonathan but I was practising a little bit wrong you know unintentionally I didn't know I was basically do you ever hear the saying practice makes perfect well there's a saying that backs that up saying practice makes permanent so I was practicing a little bit wrong and I was making it permanently wrong in BYC so when James came in and then sort of challenged that a little bit what, what was wrong so I was using restorative practice at the wrong time. I was taking people in when they basically their energy was too high. They weren't ready to be in the space. I was asking young people to go home and then come back in the next day to talk to me about restorative practice or talk to me about the incident that happened. But I didn't. I I didn't realize maybe the young person didn't have the capacity to go home, think about this, and then come back in. You know. So I was basically reinforcing the sort of the negative stereotypes that was in this in the city and basically just expecting young people to have capacity to engage. You know, I wasn't aware of that. It wasn't until I was in the sports hall and there was a young person that kicked off and I said to the young person, what I needed to do is I need to go inside and cool down. I went in and talked to the staff and said, young um, young Dorothy here is going to basically come inside and just cool down. And then Emma said, do you think he has the capacity there to do that? Do you think he's um, emotionally aware? And then I started thinking about that. So I was basically you trying to use a start of practice with the best intention, but maybe at the wrong times. A bit similar to the, again, I won't go into it, but I'm talking to you about the, something that went on, something that's going on currently in Belvedere Youth Club. If you sort of if you have a conversation with someone and basically they're all heightened and they're basically not ready for the conversation, then the series might just end up having a screaming match. Me and James, coincidentally, would have backed each other up so much that we were nearly arguing with each other. We weren't doing anybody any favours. The next day we come in, we'd laugh about it, both of us were reflecting on it, sit down and have a good conversation for two hours and then move beyond it. But not everybody has that capacity or time to do that. You know, so before I was the lone ranger of the startup, anytime I went wrong, everybody was coming to me, but I was practicing a little bit wrong. The difficulty Jonathan mentions and that other staff members uh, experienced led to another round of training in trauma-informed care. The aim is to increase practitioners' awareness of trauma's impact on people's skills, thoughts, emotion, and behaviors. Participants learn about the effect of trauma on the brain, how traumatized people can be trigger, triggered, and how to support them in regulating their emotions. At the same time, it's an opportunity for them to think about their own triggers and ways of regulating themselves. You'll hear from James, the RP coordinator, about the relevance of that type of training in BYC, and from Dean, Kira, and Jonathan about the impact the training had on them. One clarification, so ACE, ACE and ACE scores. ACE refers to adverse childhood experience. They are the traumatic events that happen to a child before 18. There is a test that one can do that gives you a score and it is considered that above four, the person has a higher risk of being under toxic stress. I suppose then I'll start by um, um, why we looked at what 
trauma-informed care could do in, in through a restorative lens. Um, and as a restorative practitioner, um, coming into a youth club especially was was looking at the the dynamics between the young person and the youth worker themselves. And um, like all organisations, and especially after COVID, we were looking at the, the trauma that was um, in, in the youth workers themselves and how that would project or how that looked with, with, with young people and, and the trauma within the young people. And as we walk in the northeast inner sea, after evaluating the staff and the young people, we came to notice that the um, ACEs were most of the children who came in here were in between the eight and ten ACEs per household were really, really high. And on conversations and reflections with some of the staff, we noticed that a lot of the staffs were at least over four ACEs per each as well. So, so reflecting on it, when, when looking at it, I sort of, it came really clear to me that there was a need for us to actually explore how do we look at dealing with trauma within the youth club setting and in the best interest of staff force primarily and then for the staff then to mirror that down to the young people. So um, I, I sort of looked out and had a, a look around to find out what would be the best methodology to use and, and we, did, we settled down on, on trauma-informed training on the basis that what we're discovering now, we're in the process of doing it now, what we're discovering now is that the lack of knowledge around our youth workers on trauma-informed training. Even though, like in some aspects, they be, they've done models of it or modules of it in, in university, these modules don't last. And I think until you're doing it practically and you're so, sitting and you're understanding it and then you, you have to actually start practicing and, and, and reflecting on it yourself personally, because like oh, I'm the restorative manager and the ACEs have, I'd have ACEs as well. So I'm looking at it as well. So it's not something that like, you know, we we should take lightly or we should think that we we fully understand. So the inf the formal sort of training and the the, the um, evidence-based sort of um, information that we're getting from that training, has, we're seeing, I believe, will be really um, essential going forward for their youth work team. So um, on that on to that context, we are sort of thinking like, we need to train them because if we're training restoratively, like to be restorative and to create a space, a safe space, you have to be in a safe space yourself. You have to feel safe, even facilitating something like, you know, as a restorative practitioner facilitating something, you could be triggered by the incident that actually happened in that. And if you don't realize that you could be detrimental in that space. So the idea is that like as a facilitator, you're on both sides. So whether you're on the harmed side or the harm doer side, you have to be have the capacity to be on both sides. And if you don't realize your own triggers, you could be sitting in there and actually re-traumatizing either a harmed person or someone who was harmed. That's the whole idea. The whole idea is that like when you look at yourself and you can reflect on yourself and you understand where you are. And and we don't want to get this to a stage where we're looking for counselors. That's not what we're looking for at all. What we're looking for is for the person who's being triggered in any situation to be to be for especially for staff to be able to recognize this and to give the first of all give themselves a, a, a space to sort of say okay i need to calm down here first before i react and that's how we do it in restorative practice but to also be able to help the young person to regulate themselves and 
by building relationships up through the restorative methodologies, then we're getting to know the young person. So in some incidents, the person might need time alone. The person might need to be held, to be, you know, physically touched and said, put your arm around the shoulder, say, you're okay. Do you need anything? You might need, it depends and, and, and to recognize that, but we will learn that as youth workers ourselves by recognizing this, what the needs of the young people themselves. And then by imparting that and being vulnerable enough to say, actually, I know how you feel. I've gone through that myself. This is how I deal with it. I take a deep breath. We have a little room down here called a nest where we'll come down here, we sit down here and we'll breathe until it's all through. And then for that incident then, we use the restorative meeting then afterwards. So it's if there was an incident between two people, you can bring the two of them down, you can regulate them separately and then bring them in. And then they're in a space where they've calmed down, the fight and flight flip has stopped. You've calmed that down to that situation. And then you can have the conversation to repair the harm that was done between the two people. And you can facilitate that properly yourself because you've self-regulated. And that's the, the premise behind everything that we're trying to do here. And then as well, then with the uh, trauma informed care training, I really enjoyed that. Yeah. Um, so obviously, I, I haven't done sort of formal education in and around your work and, uh, and and stuff like that. So, any trainings like like restorative practice or the trauma informed care training, anything like that, I really enjoy because it gives me a bit of theory behind the experience and the knowledge that I've learned working with young people and working with my colleagues. You know that I've that I've that I've sort of acquired over the years of working here. You know, um. So any any trends that sort of gives me a bit theory behind what I'm what I know I'm already doing well is always beneficial for me. But yeah, something that really stuck with me, I guess, was uh the stuff with babies. You know, um, we did watched a couple of videos on studies that were done with babies, like where, um, there was a still face where the mother would look at the child and have no emotion or have no expression on the face. And it was very interesting to watch. It was very hard to watch as well, you know, because you're, you're seeing the child in distress, you know, and it was it was, it was was like, geez, I can't understand how the mother could do that to the child. I know it's for science, you know, and, and all that, but um, it was, it, that was a difficult watch, but it was it sort of showed you how important emotion is and how expressions can be. Like, you know, regardless of what you say, if someone's not right or if someone's upset or angry or sad or whatever it is, happy as well, good and positive, positive and negative emotions, you can always tell how they're feeling by their face, you know, regardless of what they say, you know, um, or at least then, at least if you're experienced or trained enough, you should be able to notice them things, you know, so that's something that stuck with me. I wouldn't say it changed my practice. I think very similar to what you're saying there, that it just informed what I was already doing and sort of gave me a background or a, a sort of um something to fall back on and say okay this is why <clears throat> this is why this person reacted like that you know there was there was a lead up you know we can uh, like stuff like that I'd already know like beforehand in terms of like if a young person okay to wake up in the morning didn't have any breakfast going to school homework wasn't done the night before teachers are giving out stuff do you know what I mean the first thing they have to eat is lunch you know and then by the time they come to here they're still hungry you know, um, and I'm very aware a lot of times that when I'm interacting with a young person that I'm positive and that um, I try and not add to potential negativity in that day because at the end of the day, my smile could be the only smile to see that day. Hopefully it's not, you know, but it could be, you know, so anytime, like, that's why I was trying to think of the sort of process of when or 
what's led up for a young person because we only see them at three o'clock. You know, the, the 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 day is half gone by then. You know, so lots of so a lot has happened. You know, so you have to sort of I suppose take that into account when you're especially when a young person, I suppose, displays challenging behaviour. You know, it can be very easy for us to be judgmental and for us to uh, for us to turn into you know like telling young people to get out or you're barred and all that. We we try we try not to do that. You know, um, obviously to certain circumstances where. You know, for the health and safety of young people, then you have to say, okay, you have to leave now. Do you know what I mean? But we try, we try to avoid that at all costs, I guess. Yeah. Some of the things I was aware of that I would have studied in college and stuff, um, but it really just put a, a sort of a microscope on it. Like particularly, like the first thing that comes to mind for me is the Aces, um, and like I, I'm not from this community. Like I would come from outside here but so it, it put a different sort of perspective on it for me for me to be able to reflect on myself and think oh, well I had these aces and and this is how life went for me but these young people are experiencing completely different upbringings and it really sort of helped me sit back and look at their perspective and how these like aces that they might have would impact them and how I can deal with that then. Like I think awareness is the biggest thing when it comes to trauma um, and just sort of accepting the young people from who they are, where they're coming from, like really being on their level, like coming to meet them where they are is really, really important when it comes to dealing with young people who are growing up with trauma or experiencing trauma currently. Um, I think it's important to sort of show leeway with things like that. There's like one or two young people who have like recently suffered losses of um, sort of grandparents and things like that and just sort of being able to approach that with a bit more grace and gentleness and understanding than I might have in the past. Like when we did the the trauma training the week we started I lost one of my grandparents so it was very very impactful for me going through the trauma training and the grief at the same time and it sort of helped me deal with that with the grieving process and because I felt I benefited from that I felt I could like implement it really well with the kids then because I it was on the same level I understood where they were coming from and how they might be feeling and sort of that relatability relatability helped build that connection then and I think helps the kids feel a bit more supported in in their grieving process. Well, I'm very aware now of anything that sort of triggers or spikes me and I'm aware of how we can control and manage that. I sometimes still feel angry and don't like it but at the same time I'm aware of it. Previously I might have said no I'm not agreeing with that and this is why I'm not agreeing with it. Listen Dorothy you're wrong you shouldn't have done that and here's why you shouldn't have done that. Then I would have went home and said that was very harsh I shouldn't have done that I'm going to need to speak to Dorothy tomorrow. Whereas now what I do is I reflect on that and say okay I'm being spoiled John maybe relieve yourself take yourself out of the room maybe look at why you're doing that. So I'd walk away and then I'd come back to the conversation at a different point also I'd be talking to someone I could see their spice so what I'd say is okay John you might be calm and relaxed in the situation but they're not they might not be taking this in so it's doing the same thing there then to take it a bit further um, the training really gave us an opportunity to see that when trauma happens as a kid and certain things that you, um, that pop up it gives you an opportunity to then to be able to say okay you can see where this is coming from and you can put things in place to support that resilience maybe and help them like to make it sort of fully personal I hate the dentist I spoke to you before about 
know, having some issues with my teeth. They're not issues. Like, like, like that's a normal day thing. But when I was younger, I had a very, I had a terrible experience with the dentist. I can remember how many times I went to the dentist as I was younger, such was the, the pain I received in them. So that's, that, that was an issue for me, I, I mentioned over the past couple of months. And now I can, I, I still laugh to myself saying, John, you're a grown man, why have, why are these issues? But I'm aware of it. Whereas if I wasn't aware of it, I might be coming to work half asleep and taking out on everybody else. So that's where the trauma really helped me, you know? Very good. Um... But I found out recently that, like, I don't know anybody that likes a dentist. Nobody that enjoys going to a dentist or likes going to a dentist. Why would you ever? But I wasn't thinking like that. I was just thinking, this is just John. John doesn't like the dentist. But anybody I speak to, the dentist, do you know what I mean? Thank you for listening to our podcast and stay tuned for our next episodes.